here. Second Samuel 9, and uh, we're going to look at a sermon. Tonight's sermon is going to be, almost be more like a Sunday morning style message. You can stand for the reading of God's Word. It's going to be almost more of a uh, Sunday morning style sermon. Uh, this is just the way this passage is laid out. And um, uh, tonight's sermon will be giving the gospel in it. I normally don't do that on a Sunday evening, but I don't know who needs to hear it, either here or that's watching online. And so um, uh, we'll be looking at the story of Mephibosheth. And if you know the story of Mephibosheth, you can't not give the gospel when you tell the story of Mephibosheth. It is an Old Testament picture of, uh, of, of, of the way Christ wants to save us and God wants to save us through Christ. Let's look at the first three verses here. The Bible says, And God said, Is there yet any, or rather, and David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul? that I may show the kindness of God unto him. And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. The title of the message tonight is this, A Place in the Palace. A Place in the Palace. Mephibosheth is the name of Jonathan's son. He's living in exile. At the beginning of 2 Samuel 9, he's going to get to live in the palace by the end of the chapter and enjoy all of the perks of being a child of the king. Let's pray this evening. God, as we look at this passage, may it refresh us. May the gospel wash over us. Uh, Lord, may it be a fresh drink of cool water to a weary soul. And Lord, for one here tonight that may not be saved or may not quite understand what salvation is, Lord, may this uh, just serve as a deeper, richer explanation and bring them to a point of salvation for all of us. May we be grateful when we leave here for what you did for us when you saved us. Lord, we, may we leave here tonight grateful that we came to church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Very few passages in the Old Testament offer a clearer picture of salvation than the one we find here in 2 Samuel 9. The story we find here is one of grace and integrity. The story of the Bible is really quite simple to understand. People say the Bible is complicated. I have a hard time understanding it. And I would say, no, not really. The uh, overall overarching story of the Bible is really quite simple. God made mankind perfect way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, in their perfection, chose to eat the forbidden fruit. And when they did so, it brought upon themselves and all of humanity that would be birthed through their womb, through their bowels, it brought a sin curse that would end up, uh, that would end in both eternal and earthly death. But God so loved the world that He allowed His only begotten Son, Jesus, to come down and become one of us. Jesus would pay the penalty of sin and He would die in our place. Those who choose to believe in, believe in Jesus receive the free gift of salvation and are given access to the palace in heaven for all of eternity. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, He said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Stop and think about that just for a moment. God is preparing... 
a place in his palace for you. Do you deserve it? No. We deserve hell. But he's preparing a place in his palace for you. He's preparing a place for you to live. While you and I don't deserve it, he freely offers it anyway. We see this same narrative I just laid out for you. We see this same exact narrative play out between King David, who is a picture of God the Father in the story, Jonathan, who is a picture of God the Son, and Mephibosheth, who is a picture of sinful, broken humanity. Now, if you're listening in this evening and you have never humbled yourself and received the gift of eternal life and been given access to God's palace in heaven, then the sermon this evening will be an invitation for you to do just that. Uh, For the rest of you here that are believers, uh, then the sermon tonight will challenge you to be a Christian of integrity, a Christian that keeps your word, a Christian who shows kindness to others even when they don't deserve it. It will challenge you to understand even better the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you can and will share it with others. Let's look at a handful of observations this evening out of 2 Samuel 9 as we consider this title, A Place in the Palace. All right, let's take notes tonight. You received that half sheet on the way in, I assume. Point number one is Mephibosheth's injury. Mephibosheth's Injury. We see that here Mephibosheth has suffered a great injury. Letter A, we see his physical pain. Look at me at verse 3 of 2 Samuel 9. It says, And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto him, Jonathan hath yet a son, look here, which is lame on his feet. Lame on his feet. As far as we know, Uh, He was paralytic from probably the knees down. All right, definitely his ankles and feet, but probably the knees down. Uh, How did this happen to Jonathan's son? Well, this is an important part of the narrative. Turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, 2 Samuel 4, and look with me at verse number 4. If I could get my lapel mic, that would be great. 2 Samuel 4 and verse number 4. The Bible says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame of his feet. Now here's how it happened. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So, word comes that Saul and Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father and grandfather, had been killed in the battle against the Philistines. We find that story at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. He's killed, and in their death, the word comes to the home where Mephibosheth lives, Jonathan's son, and a nurse scoops up five-year-old Mephibosheth and starts to run out the door to carry him to safety, thinking that maybe the Philistines may try to kill him as well. And she trips and she drops him and he lands in such a way that he becomes a paralytic in his feet. He is suffering great physical 
pain, great physical pain. And this was not just something that was a one-time event. All of us have seen children get hurt. Uh, all of us parents in here have seen our kids get their bumps and bruises. And, and uh, sometimes uh, the injuries are more severe than others. And I know that with our kids, they have gotten hurt to a place where mom is very worried. And dad is a little bit worried, but mom is very worried because the kid is screaming and crying. And uh, we've had to take our kids to the hospital a couple of times. Never any broken bones or stitches, praise the Lord. Uh, but uh, still had to take them to the hospital. Actually, we had a broken collarbone once. That's the story from the day. And um, mom, very, very, very worried. Dad, a little bit worried, and maybe a lot of bit worried too. And, and listen, but those wounds heal. And, and you move on because children are like rubber, right? Seemingly, they just kind of bounce right back. But for Mephibosheth, this wasn't just a one-time injury that he would recover from in a matter of weeks or months or after a hospital stay. No, for Mephibosheth... This would be a problem for the rest of his life. This would be an inconvenience the rest of his life. Uh, he would not be able to use his feet for the rest of his life. He was hampered. He was wounded. He was limited without the modern technologies to help people who are paralytic like we have today. There was no wheelchair that we know of. There weren't, I'm sure they had some form of crutches, but uh, there weren't all of the things that they have today, the modern medicine uh, to help him. He was very much limited with uh, little help. Furthermore, societally, he would not be much of use because uh, society was not as compassionate toward people with paralysis in that day as they are in our Western culture here today. We see his physical pain, but letter B, we see his emotional pain. His emotional pain. Can you imagine the damage this did to him? Not only the physical pain that he experienced, but the emotional damage. He was an heir to the throne before his father and grandfather died. Now he is an outcast. He was able-bodied, but now he's a cripple. Are you talking about having your whole life change at one moment? That watershed moment where things are just never going to be the same. He goes from living a life of great luxury, the life of being part of the elite class of Israel, he goes from being blue blood and royalty to where now he's on the run for his life. He's a fugitive. On top of that, he can't walk. Now he's dependent on others to take care of him until the day he dies. Now this is creating quite a bit of emotional damage in his life. Emotional hurt. We see his injury. Number two, notice Mephibosheth's isolation. Not only was he injured, but now he has to go into hiding. Look at Second Samuel chapter 9 and look at verse 4. And the king said unto him, Where is he? Now, let me just pause. Think about this for a moment. David is well networked. He has his own, if you will, CIA or FBI. Um, we know from reading through the story of David and Saul that it was very normal for the king to have spies. And these spies knew everything. And to not know where the former king's son was was quite an accomplishment. Quite an accomplishment. Um, 
for them to have, for David to have to go find someone outside of his intelligence ring to tell him where the former king's grandson was, uh, shows just how well hidden he was. How isolated that Mephibosheth was. Look back at verse 4. And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Now, you wouldn't get this from a casual reading of the Bible, but Lodabar was a region located east of the Jordan River. The word Lodabar literally means a place with no pasture. A place with no pasture. It was a place that was barren and desolate. Why would have Mephibosheth been taken here? Because he was afraid of the incoming king killing him. We know from just studying history that it was very customary when you had a, a, a change in, in, in kingdom where one family left and another family came in, that the incoming king would kill off all of the potential, uh, uh, all of the potential subjects that could come in and dethrone him. All of the children and grandchildren and cousins and nieces and nephews were, were, were beheaded so that they could not pose a risk to the new king. And you wonder the intelligence that Mephibosheth's family and caretakers had. If they had listened to Saul about David, what do you think they thought of David? He was a pretty terrible person. Saul had nothing positive to say about David. If he listened to Jonathan, his father, then probably he thought good of David. There was obviously a mixed message here to a place where now Mephibosheth is living in a place that is barren, a place with no pasture. In fear, Mephibosheth had been taken in a desolate region so that his life would not be ended. Now, he's gone from being a five-year-old boy to an adult man. Watch this now. He has a son of his own named Micah. He's lived his whole life as a fugitive from David's men. Paranoid. Always looking around every corner. Always looking over his own shoulder. Always wondering who it is that's knocking at the door, always wondering if and when he would be found out and hung or beheaded. Being isolated is not fun. Being ostracized by the mainstream is no way to live life. But this was Mephibosheth's entire life. We see his injury. We see Mephibosheth's isolation. Notice number three, King David's integrity. King David's integrity. Look back at Second Samuel chapter 9. And look at verse number 1. The Bible says, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was, by the way, underline that phrase, for Jonathan's sake. We're going to circle back to that later in the message. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called unto, unto David, and called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. Let me give you letter A and a B here. Letter A, notice, speaking of David's integrity, notice his covenant. Turn back over to 1 Samuel chapter number 20 and look at verse number 12. 1 Samuel chapter 20. And this is really where we have some historical context that helps us. 1 Samuel 20. 
You may remember that in 1 Samuel 18, the very beginning of the chapter, this is right after David slays Goliath, and David is brought in before uh, Saul, and Jonathan is there. And the Bible tells us in the beginning of chapter 18 that David and Saul, that their souls were knit together. Right there in the very beginning of chapter 18, we're told their souls were knit together. They would develop a very deep friendship that the Bible would go on to say their, their love for each other was greater than a love a man and woman even shared. Uh, they were, uh, they were uh, in a wholesome uh, way, a clean way, they were soulmates. They were that close to one another and uh, several times they make a covenant with one another that uh, when David is king that Jonathan will, will will be an advisor in his palace and that David will look after Jonathan's family and Jonathan will look after David's family. We find such covenant in First Samuel 20 verse 12. The Bible says, And Jonathan said unto David, O Lord God of Israel, when I have sounded my father about tomorrow any time or the third day, and behold, if there be good toward David, and I then sin not unto thee, and show it thee, the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it please my father to do thee evil, then will I, I will shew it thee, and send thee away, and uh, thou mayest go in peace, and the Lord be with thee, as he hath been with my father, and thou shalt not only, uh, while yet I live, show me the kindness of the Lord, that I d- die not. Verse 15, but also thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord hath cut off the enemies of David, every one from the face of the earth. So Jonathan says to David, do not kill my family when you're king. Show kindness to my family. Look at 16. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so now we see all these years later, Jonathan is dead, and Saul is dead, and David has gone through uh, the process of being king of, of a small region there in Hebron for seven years, seven and a half years, and then made king over all of Israel. And David has gone through the process of moving the Ark of the Covenant into uh, Israel, into Jerusalem, and, and, and uh, 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 gathering all the materials to build the temple. And now he's checking off a list of promises that he's made to himself and to others, and now he gets to the promise he made to Jonathan, and he says, I made a covenant with Jonathan to look after his family, and I will follow through. I will be a man of integrity. I will keep my word. His covenant, letter B, we see his commitment. Look at verse number 1 of Second Samuel 9. Go back to chapter 9, look at verse 1. The Bible says, And David said, Is there any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, when we think of David, the character of David, the person of David, okay, uh, we generally think of one of two people, right? If you just stop the average churchgoer and said, tell me about David in 30 seconds or less, you're going to hear two names. First name you're going to hear is Goliath. The second name you're going to hear is Bathsheba. All right, we'll get to her in a couple weeks. All right? And uh, we think of David, or rather we think of Goliath and Bathsheba. You know, that's really a lazy approach 
to take with David because he was so much more than just Goliath and Bathsheba. I want you to imagine you walk into a room with a high ceiling and, 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 a, and a wide wall. And on that entire wall, all right, this large wall uh, with many square feet on it, all right, you have a large white canvas that covers the entire wall. And on that canvas, in the center of that canvas, you have a little, uh, relative to the size of the canvas, you have a little black spot. You have a little black stain. All right? You walk into the room and you see the canvas. What's the very first thing you notice? You see the stain. Right? You ignore the rest of the canvas that's pure and white and clean. And you hyper-focus on the black spot, the stain. Right? I think that's what we do to David. All right. I'm not meaning to de-emphasize his sin because he did sin. All right. We're going to give we're going to give uh, time to that when, when we get to that passage. But there's so much more to David than that. And there's so much more to David than just Goliath. You see, I, I mentioned a moment ago, David is the one that brought Jerusalem and all of Israel to a place where it would not just be a city of David, it would be the city of the son of David. He is the one that brought all of Israel to a place where they truly and deeply worshipped God. He was the one who would sit in his palace at night and twiddle his thumbs and think to himself, how can I love God more? I have an idea. Let's build him a temple. And God said, well, hold on here. You're a man of war. We're going to have your son do it, but you can gather all the materials. And David, uh, he gathered together such great wealth of materials that when the temple was built, it was so gaudy and ostentatious that uh, every single pillar was covered in gold. Every single wall was covered in gold. I mean, the purest gold, the finest of wood was used, the cedars of Lebanon. And David did all of this because he thought God deserved the best. In fact, he is described as a man who sought diligently after God's heart. David here is seen in 2 Samuel 9 as keeping his covenant promise with Jonathan to love on his descendants well after Jonathan's life has ended. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you keep your word? We live in a day and time where people are really good at just saying, Yep, I'll be there. Yep, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll make that happen. And you can't really put your weight on their word. I'm going to take it a step further. You listening, Christian? We live in a time where people are shifty and don't want to commit to things. Right? They give a positive response, but they don't make a commitment. Right? Uh, you invite someone to church. Yeah, I'll think about it. They don't want to be pinned down. They don't want to make a commitment. How about Christian, when we give our word, first of all, we do give our word. And second of all, we keep our word. Amen? You make a commitment to give to our bus ministry in December during Bus Emphasis Day. Hey, by the time you get to July, August, September, you think, you know what, I could use this money elsewhere and if I don't give, the buses will keep rolling. And that's true. If you don't give, the buses will keep rolling. We're not going to stop running the bus because you're not following through on your commitment. 
But you know what? Your integrity is, in, is at stake. You made a promise. You need to follow through on that promise. You make a commitment to give uh, to our missions program. Our missionaries depend on your giving. And all of a sudden, money gets tight. What's the first thing we pull? We don't pull our Starbucks money. We don't cut back our cable package. We pull away from our missions giving. Or our general fund giving. And you know what? You're not keeping your word. And that's not fair to the Lord. That's not fair to all of those missionaries that we have committed to support. And you say, well, well, listen, the, the, the missions checks keep getting cut. Whether I give, there's others that giving that will make up the difference. Oh, my goodness, I'm glad the rest of the church doesn't think like that. I'm glad someone has enough wherewithal to hold to their keeping their word. You know, David could have said, well, you know what? My spies can't find anyone in, in uh, Jonathan's family. Uh, to take care of, and so there must not be anybody else. Oh, well. But no, David had made a promise. He had made a covenant, and he went the extra mile to find people outside of his own spy network to say, is there any family left? And when he found them, when he found Mephibosheth, he loved on him. Do you keep your word to your own hurt? I'm going to go one more. I'm going to I'm going to go one more direction with this, then we'll move on with the message. Christians should pay their bills, not look to beg out. You took that credit card and you signed on the dotted line, or you clicked accept on a website. You agreed to that high interest. Don't let that go to debt collection, and avoid paying it. And there's Christians in this country that have. Tens of thousands of dollars in back taxes. Pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Pay your bills. Be a man and woman of integrity. We, we, we devalue and decredit ourselves when we can't keep our own word to our own hurt. Pay your bills. Number four, King David's invitation. We've seen Mephibosheth's injury. We've seen Mephibosheth's isolation. King David's integrity. Now let's look at King David's invitation. To Mephibosheth. Go back to 2 Samuel, look at chapter 9 and verse 6. The Bible says, And when Mephibosheth, the son of David, or rather, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, look here, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. Notice he says his name. And he answered, Behold thy servant. David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee Kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake. Again, underline that phrase, for Jonathan thy father's sake. And will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father. And thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, notice his response, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertained to Saul and to all this house. So he gives the property back that Saul had owned. Uh, thou therefore and thy sons and thy servants shall till the land for him, that thou shalt bring in the fruits that thy master's son may have food to eat. Look here. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Mephibosheth made the choice to move out of Lodabar and into the palace. 
I almost titled the sermon tonight, Come Out of Lodabar. Come out of Lodabar. Leave that barren desert place behind. God is inviting you to move into the palace, right? And so many people are content in Lodabar. They're content to live in a barren uh, wilderness of sin and, and sorrow and suffering. And they want to hold on to uh, 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 the, the, uh, the, the poor relationships. And they want to hold on to the consequences of sinful living. And they want to hyper-focus on the quote-unquote season of, of sin and the fun that around that season is sin. And, and only to their own hurt. Only to their own destruction. Only to a life of pain. Only to a life of relational brokenness. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords, He sits in heaven and He says, come out of Lodabar and come live in the palace of the king. And so many people say, I'll do it later. I'll do it later. And God says, no, don't do it later. Come now. And for Jonathan's sake, David loved Mephibosheth and David spared his life. Now Mephibosheth had been made lame through a disastrous fall. He had been exiled and isolated, and now was being restored and treated like a son of the king. This is a story, a beautiful story, of kindness, redemption, and great grace. Number five. Number five. Notice, salvation illustrated. If you can't see the gospel in this story, then you've got to take your blinders off. Boy, it is thick it is there. Now, I know of people who find Jesus in every passage of Scripture and will turn everything into a typology of Christ. And I've gone and listened to some sermons out of First and Second Samuel online of preachers that do that. And they just find Jesus. And He's there, but they sort of pull back the, the veil and show you Jesus in, in all of the different stories here of the life of David. And, uh, but, but with this one... There's no getting around it. This is the point of the passage. This is the point of the story to show us an Old Testament type of how God loved us for Christ's sake. Uh, letter A, notice sin's damage. Sin's damage. We're going to leave Second Samuel 9, and now we're going to travel to the book of Romans. Take your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. I, for you, will read the other verses outside of Romans, but I want us to be in Romans from this point forward. So if you can, get over to Romans 5. We're going to look at several, several verses out of the book of Romans tonight. Look at Romans chapter 5 and look at verse number 12. The Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man, this is speaking of Adam, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. You see, Mephibosheth was living in a palace. His grandfather was the king. His father was the heir to the throne. He was, he was two deaths away from potentially being placed in that place, in that, in that, in that seat. Uh, here you had Mephibosheth. He had it all. And then all of a sudden, there is a, a, a fall. His father and, and uh, grandfather die, and then he's dropped. And likewise, we as humanity, as Adam and Eve, were perfect in God's palace, perfect in in God's paradise, perfect in the Garden of Eden, and there was a different disastrous fall. 
No, humanity was not dropped by a careless nurse. Humanity was dropped by Adam and Eve's decision to choose sin and to choose their own way over the Lord's way. And as a result, you and I have been dropped under a sin curse. We have been made lame on our spiritual feet. Mephibosheth being dropped was no fault of his own, but had to live with the consequences. You and I were not dropped by a fault of our own. Adam and Eve dropped us when they sinned, and we were made lame, born lame on our spiritual feet. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 73 two, he said, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. I look at where my sinful feet have taken me personally and I can say that I have no solid spiritual footing under myself. I, like you, am bent toward sin and cannot help but do wrong. I, like you, have made a mess of my life with my own choices at times. And if it were not for the grace of God to shine away down on my feet and show me how to live, I would make a total disaster of my life. Why? I'm lame on my own spiritual feet. My spiritual feet are broken because of sin. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. Uh, Look with me here. The Bible talks about how that we are broken. We're gone out of the way. Our our feet uh, can't find the right path because we have lame spiritual feet. We're damaged like Mephibosheth being dropped by the nurse. We've been dropped uh, into sin. Look at verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. Why? Our spiritual feet are lame. We cannot walk on the right path. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Listen, we all live in a sin-cursed fallen world. We all see the damage of sin around us. I have noticed... How that it is human nature to hyper-focus on sins that people commit that are far worse than the ones that we commit. Right? Stop and ask the average person, can you give me an example of a sin? You know what they point to? Murder. Well, they've never committed murder. At least that's the assumption. Right? Robbing a bank. Okay. How many people, what's the percentage of people that rob a bank? <laughs> pretty low, right? All right. Uh, People who hurt children. Well, those are all horrible things. We want to hyper-focus on these sins that we don't commit. But did you know that Adam and Eve did not hurt a child or rob a bank or commit murder? Their first sin was just simple disobedience. And in that disobedience, Jesus was condemned to the cross. You see, you don't have to commit some large, egregious sin to be uh, damaged. No, uh, your lying, your disobedience, the deceit you live under, the pride in your heart has shown that you are damaged goods, your spiritual feet are lame, and you are out of the way. Uh, James tells us that if you offend at one point, you have broken the whole law. We're all damaged. I stop and ask people, Do you know you're going to heaven someday? What would you tell the Lord at the gate of heaven uh, uh, if He asked you why He should let you in? And the most common response is, because I'm a good person. And I just want you to pause for a moment and think about that. Romans 3 says, there is none righteous. There are none that are good. 
We're all damaged. We've all been dropped. Our feet are spiritual. Our feet, spiritual feet, are paralytic. Letter B, our desolation. Our desolation. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Notice there, it says, For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a price tag on sin, and that price tag is death. We talked about how that customarily Mephibosheth should have been put to death. He should have been uh, beheaded or hung. He should have been killed. David would have been justified within the system of his day to have put Mephibosheth to death because the wages uh, of sin uh, for us is death. God, I don't want you to miss this now, God would have been justified to pick you up by the nap of your neck and drop you in hell and would have needed no explanation as to why He did it. Because the wages of sin is death. I, I, I think that we have a culture today that is extremely entitled. We think that we have our rights. When I'm watching um, advertisements through either, you know, prior to a YouTube video or, or on a TV uh, commercial watching a sports game or whatnot and a, Commercial comes on, and this has been going on since I was a small child. I'm going to guess this has been going on prior to me being alive. You'll hear in the advertisements, someone will say, it's your right to have insurance. It's your right to own a car. It's your right to be happy. It's your right to fill in the blank. And you know what? That does not fit with Scripture. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. It shall die. I have one right, and that's to go to hell. That's what I deserve. That's what I deserve. People get upset. How could God, how could a loving God send uh, sinners to hell? Hold on, because they're sinners. They're They've broken His law and earned His wrath. John 3, 18 says, He that believeth on Him is not condemned. Look here. He, listen here. He that believeth not is condemned already. Revelation 20, 14 and 15 says, And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Just as Mephibosheth living in Lodabar, a, a place of no pasture, a place of barrenness, a place of uh, a wasteland, there he is living there in hiding from a wrathful, uh, a perceived wrathful king who would chop his head off and kill him. Humanity has been pushed to desolation from their sin, afraid of the wrath of God that will come down and send them to hell. We run from God. We live in our own world of sin. We're desolate. Uh, uh, we're, we waller in our sin. We celebrate our sin and we turn our back on God because we think that God does not love us. But my friend, God does indeed love us. Letter A, sin's damage. Letter B, our desolation. Notice letter C, Christ's devotion. Christ's devotion. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. I love, love, love this verse. Ephesians 4, 32 reminds me so much of 2 Samuel 9, 1 and 2. 
and be ye kind one to another. Was not David that showed kindness to Jonathan's son? He was kind. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. If you know the verse, finish it with me. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Even, hold on, we, say, we, we have verses memorized, and then from our muscle memory, they just come spit out of our mouth, and we don't stop and think about what we just said. Take a minute and think about this. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Why did God forgive you? Was it for you? It's for Christ's sake. Look at Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 6. This is beautiful. You see, uh, before you can uh, make peace with God and move into the palace of heaven, before you can do that, you need to understand that you are damaged from sin, you are desolate and separate from God, you are under a sin curse, and that God wants to forgive you for Christ's sake. Look at verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good, uh, good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth, he proved his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has forgiven us of our sin for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. Remember when I had you underlined back in 2 Samuel 9, those two phrases, for Jonathan's sake? David showed kindness to Mephibosheth, not because he loved Mephibosheth. David showed kindness to Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. Why is it that God is willing to forgive your sin? Why is it that God is willing to invite you to live in His palace? It isn't for your sake. It's for Christ's sake. You see, Christ, He looked at God and said, I love them. I love them so much. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to become one of them. And I'm going to hang on a cross and I'm going to suffer in their place and I'm going to suffer their hell on Calvary and I'm going to raise from the dead and I'm going to live forevermore. He says to His Father, I want you to love them for My sake. And Jonathan looked at David and he said, One day when I'm dead and gone, I want you to love my offspring, not for their sake. I want you to love them for my sake. And David goes and he gets Mephibosheth. He's broken and he brings him in the palace and he says, I'm doing this for Jonathan's sake. And God in heaven looks at you and He says, you're broken in sin. I owe you nothing. You deserve nothing. But I'm going to love you and I'm going to invite you to come live in my palace. For Christ's sake. Isn't it a beautiful story? Christ's devotion to Jesus is what saves our souls from a place like Lodabar, barren, a desert wilderness, a place of no pasture, a place where if we died, we would go to hell. And He invites us right into the palace because Christ's devotion. Letter D, this is another very important part of the formula of salvation. Notice our demeanor. Our demeanor. Remember when Mephibosheth said, when he, remember what he said when he entered the presence of David? He said to David, he said, I am but a dead dog. I am but a dead dog. He didn't look at Jesus and say, you better save me because, or right, he didn't look at David and say, you better, you better invite me in your palace because I was Saul's son. I'm somebody. 
No, no, no. 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 He knew he was a nobody. He knew that in most circumstances, it would be off with your head. He knew that he did not deserve to live in that culture of that day. And he came and he humbled himself. He did not throw a pity party for himself. He did not blame circumstances. Rather, he humbled his heart and he said, David, I do not know why you would do this, King David. It is because your honor of your goodness and your grace and your kindness, I am but a dead dog. I'm going to have you turn over to, uh, hold your place in Romans. Turn over to Luke chapter 23 for me. You see, pride keeps people from heaven. Pride keeps people in Lodabar. Mephibosheth could have said, nope, I'm not going. Don't take me to the palace. I want nothing to do with it. But, but, but Mephibosheth, the king wants you to live in his palace. He wants to restore property rights of Saul back to you. He wants to give you those, that property back. He wants to give you those fields back. He wants to give you a bedroom in the palace. He wants to invite you to eat bread continually at his table. And Mephibosheth says, I'm happy here in Lodabar. Could have said, I'm happy here in Lodabar. I want nothing to do with the palace in his pride. He could have stiff-armed David and probably been uh, a died a miserable man over it. But instead, he he humbled himself. He threw himself down at the, at the feet of the throne. And he said to David, I am but a dead dog. And my friend, you cannot have the gift of eternal life. You cannot have salvation. You cannot have an invitation into the palace until you humble your heart and see yourself but a dead dog in the sight of our Lord and Savior. Look at Luke 23. Look at verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, notice the demeanor, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. We have a cheap version of the gospel given out in this country. I think the American gospel is more like we treat Jesus like some kind of life coach that's meant to help us improve instead of some Savior that's supposed to redeem us from our brokenness and sin. Church is just a place we go to have a social club instead of a place to own up who we are and be made better in Christ. You cannot be saved. You cannot experience the kindness of the King until you humble your heart, admit that you're a sinner, admit that you deserve hell, throw yourself at His mercy, and ask Him to save you for Christ's sake. He's waiting on that humble heart. I tell this story with a heaviness of soul. I, I think about this from time to time. Some years ago, I was living in Terryville, Connecticut, 2014 time range. I'd go out soul winning every Saturday. 
invite people to church. In the nine months I lived there, I did not lead a single person to Christ. Very difficult community. Very difficult community. I remember one Saturday, I was knocking doors in a little apartment complex. It was just uh, one apartment building right there, um, uh, single story, probably six or seven apartments, and and, and just sort of a one-off apartment building there in the neighborhood. And, And I got about five doors in, and I knocked on the door, and a gentleman came out on his porch, and I got a chance to give him the gospel. I went all the way through, explained to him everything that I explained to you tonight, and he shook his head in agreement. He was clearly listening. And we got down to the end. I invited him to pray the sinner's prayer, and he bowed his head, and phrase by phrase he began to repeat after me. And I had him say, Dear Lord Jesus, Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner. I know I deserve to go to hell when I die. Pause. I know I deserve to go to hell when I die. Quietness. I looked up at him and I said, are you okay? He said, I don't believe I deserve to go to hell when I die. I don't believe that I deserve that. I took him through the Scriptures. I showed him several verses. He said, yeah, I see it. I see it, but I just think I've been a good enough person where I should get to avoid hell. My friend, he's missing the the whole point of Scripture. God is waiting for you to humble your heart to a point where you admit, I'm broken. Spiritually, I'm a paralytic, damned to a devil's hell, and for the grace of God would I be saved. Letter E, and lastly, notice our deliverance. Go back to Romans 8 with me. Go back to Romans, the book of Romans. Look at chapter 8 with me. When we get through with the book of Isaiah on Wednesday nights, in the next four years, however long it takes us, it's taking us a long time to get through Isaiah. We're in chapter 40. I encourage you to join us on Wednesday evenings. We're going verse by verse in the book of Isaiah. I'm in no rush. I'm enjoying the book. I hope those of you that have been in attendance are enjoying the book. But when we get through Isaiah, we're going to move on, Lord willing, we're going to move on to the book of Romans. I'm really excited to go verse by verse through it. Romans 8 is, uh, for many people, is their favorite chapter in the Bible. Theologically rich. Verse 15, 16, and 17 talk to us about being adopted and moving into the palace of the king, if you will. Look at verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear... But ye have received the spirit of adoption. Oh, those words are beautiful. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And that word Abba is an endearing term similar to our word Daddy in the English language. Verse 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Look at 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. This just gets me excited. And joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. I think about Mephibosheth. I think about how that he was living in this barren uh, wilderness of Lodabar. And how his life changed in just one day. The next morning he woke up in a room that was decorative and fun and and, and, and grandiose. He remembered, maybe remembered that back from when he was a five-year-old boy getting to live in a house like that. And 
And he can't walk, but there are king's servants who come and pick him up and carry him down the stairs into the grand dining hall. You see, it's breakfast time. And he's seated at the table. And now he gets to sit and have dinner with the king. Oh, by the way, his feet were still lame. That remembrance of his fall. But he would have perfect fellowship with the king. And my friend, that's exactly how we're going to be in heaven one day. You put your faith and trust in Christ alone. You ask Him to give you the gift of eternal life. You throw yourself at the throne of His mercy and ask Him to save you. Then guess what? He moves you into the palace. He makes a place in heaven for you. Tonight, God is calling you out of Lodabar. You may have learned to live in the place of barrenness. You may have learned to love isolation from the presence of God. You may waller around in your sin and think that you're having a great time. But tonight, God is extending an invitation to you to leave your Lodabar and come and take up residence in His palace. But you must humble yourself and trust only Him. If you're here tonight and you've already done that, my encouragement to you is quite simple. Keep your word. Be kind. Be gracious. Let's be men and women of integrity. Let's make sure that we extend the kindness to others that David extended to Mephibosheth. God has forgiven you of your eternal debt. Boy, let's extend that same kindness and grace and tenderheartedness to others around us. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed at this time. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I hope that tonight, for those of you who are saved, The story of David and Mephibosheth has been a clean washing of the gospel over your soul. But there may be one here tonight that's not put their faith and trust in Christ alone. Maybe you have looked at this from a standpoint of being a little entitled. Maybe you have looked at this from a standpoint of confusion. You've not not understood prior to now quite clearly, the gospel, the way it was explained. Oh, my friend, whether you've been coming to our church for a handful of weeks or for many, many years, do not leave here tonight without settling this matter of salvation and being forgiven. Is there one here this evening that would say, Pastor Lejeune, I do not know that I've yet accepted the invitation to live in God's palace. I do not know that my sins have been forgiven. Pastor, would you just please pray for me? If that's you with no one else looking, every head bowed, every eye closed, just me and you, would you just hold up your hand right where you are so I could pray for you? Is there one? I just don't know if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. If you're watching online and that's you, let me just encourage you tonight to throw yourself at the mercy of God and just call out to Him. He wants to save you for Christ's sake. He loves you through Christ. It's just as simple as telling Him that you're a sinner deserving of hell. Asking Him to forgive you and give you the gift of eternal life. If you've never done that, why don't you just take a moment right now where you're sitting. Pause what you're doing. Ask Him to save your soul. How many here tonight would say, Pastor Lejeune, pray for me that I will be a man or woman of integrity.
that I will extend the kindness to others that David extended to Mephibosheth. Here's my hand. Would you please pray for me? Amen. Many hands. Lord, help us tonight to be men and women of integrity. Help us tonight to be people who give the gospel to others. Lord, the world is dying and heading to a devil's hell. We need to extend that grace. Lord, use us this evening. In Jesus' name.